Well, last week I taught about the Passover and the Lamb of God and the blood of the Lamb and uh, spoke about the Passover table and all the items on the Passover table and spoke about the cup. I spoke about that on the Passover table, there were four cups, of course. There was the cup that represented the rescue of the people, that God is a rescuer. There was the cup that represented the truth that God had freed the people from slavery. There was the third cup of which Jesus held up and said, This is my blood was the third cup in the Passover that spoke of the redeeming power of the almighty God. And there was the fourth cup which spoke of the renewed relationship that Israel would now experience as they moved forward and as they, as they went out of slavery. And of course that was an astonishing moment. When in the Passover, the father often stands up and takes the unleavened bread. And as he takes it, he breaks it and he says, this is the bread of our suffering. Uh, Our fathers ate it in the wilderness. And, and, And everybody, let us eat it and remember this. And then Jesus at that very moment said, take this. This is my body. Changing the script of a thousand years, changing the way that we thought about that moment because suddenly rather than remembering an exodus of one nation, of one people, now Jesus declared that I am the affliction, I am the suffering and I will lead you out in the greatest exodus that has ever been known in the history of mankind and that is that all of humanity... All of humanity can know the freeing power of the gospel from the slavery of sin through my suffering. And he said, I will not eat or drink until this moment, which was an oath of covenant, an ancient way of saying, until the job's done, I will not rest. I will complete the task completely for my people so that you can be taken You and I can be taken to the greatest feast that is ever known. It will be the Glam's Feast in the glory of heaven. And we will celebrate on that new day the great feast of the Lamb. And you and I are going to be there. You and I will experience this. And Jesus went through this so that he could bring us back into the Father's arms. And that's how much he values us. That's how much he loves us. And on our road to Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we are doing a number of reflections around the work of the cross and around Jesus' journey. So if you're familiar with this, we're moving from the dinner, as it were, from the evening supper, from the Lord's Supper, and we are moving to the Garden of Gethsemane. So let's Let's, let's go there for a moment. And they went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. The garden of Gethsemane, of course, is a place where Jesus starts to agonize. It's a place where he experiences the pain and the suffering. It's, a, it's amazing what takes place. We suddenly see Jesus um, battling 
with the task that God has called him to do. Now this is strange, because the juggernaut of Jesus the Messiah has been rolling through the gospel of Mark. We have seen miracle after miracle. We've seen great preaching rallies. We've seen him minister in power. We have seen Jesus in Mark's gospel at his very greatest and at his very best. Amazing. There is not even, he is unflappable, he is unshakable. He is unstoppable. If you're a leper, he heals the lepers. If you're blind, he opens the blind eyes. He declares that he is the Messiah, the anointed one of God, coming in power, coming in anointing. And all of a sudden, his heart is open in these verses. And and to his disciples, he shows them the pain. It's like open heart surgery of the emotions. We see what he's battling through. He opens his pain to his father in heaven and his battle. And he opens his pain to you and I as readers of the gospel. This is strange. It's strange simply because in all of ancient history there is not an account of someone who is the great leader struggling in the way that he is struggling. Oh, Socrates, we all know the story. If you don't know, the great Greek philosopher was condemned to death himself. And he was to drink hemlock. And as he walked out, the great Stoic philosopher turned around, cracked jokes, laughed with his friends, did amazing one-liners, not a flinch of fear of death in his mind and in his heart. He drank the hemlock, fell over and died. Wow. Jesus is struggling. In the great writings of 1st Maccabees and 2nd Maccabees, you may not be aware of these writings, but of Jewish history, where the great Jewish warrior went to war against those who warred against Jerusalem to bring freedom to the temple and freedom to Jerusalem. They They were cut in half. They were burnt. But they considered it great joy for the day of God. And they were warriors of the king. And they would go out there for their God in Jewish history history and there was not even a moment of remorse. They would go to die to save the city of Jerusalem. Yet Jesus is here weeping, questioning, praying. He's suffering. He's actually saying, if it's possible, take this away from me. He's actually saying, let me off the hook. I don't I will do the mission, but I don't want to do the mission. I'm I'm struggling here. I'm I'm, I'm trying to come to terms with what is taking place. And, And the words actually say this. He began to be deeply, profoundly distressed. This word distressed actually in the Greek is astonished. By what he is now seeing, by what he is now experienced, he is astonished. And when it uses the word troubled, it means that he is horrified. He's utterly horrified. He is utterly 
astonished. At this moment, he is struggling. He's trying to find his way through. He's in the garden. And what he experiences and what he sees so overwhelms us. He is nauseous. He is sick to the very pit of his stomach because he, he's battling to come to terms with what he is suddenly seeing. This unflappable, this unstoppable, this Messiah Jesus is suddenly faced with something horrific. Horrific. You think, well, what about great Christians? I mean, Christians have died all through the centuries. Uh, they've done all kinds of wicked things to Christians. We've, we've been cut in half. We've been thrown to wild animals. We've been set alight like at the stake. What about Polycarp, the great bishop of Smyrna? He was led out, tied to a pile of wood, and told, recant the Christian faith. And the great bishop of Smyrna said, no, the flames that I experience at this moment are but a moment, but the glory of God is wonderful. And yet the flames of hell and judgment are so horrific. This is nothing because of Christ my Lord. I will not recount. Why isn't Jesus doing this? What about guys like, if you're into church history, um, uh, if you think of Nicholas Ridley and his good friend, as they were tied, uh, Lattimore, as they were tied in 1555 in the centre of Oxford, the great Protestant preachers of the gospel were burnt alive in the centre of Oxford City and, and, and what did Ridley say? Ridley said, be of good cheer. Because what is happening now will set the whole of England ablaze with the gospel. And they died. And today, College of Ridley exists, uh, produces the leading evangelical Anglican ministers in that nation. But Jesus is struggling. Jesus is battling. He's feeling overwhelmed. Have you ever felt like that? where you've actually felt like you are in such pain. You're shocked and sick to your stomach. You see something. One of our daughters had a car crash. She was a passenger in the car. And such is today's uh, life with mobile phones. They were driving around a certain stretch of road in the orchards, and, and somehow the young driver with my daughter sat next somehow accelerated rather than decreased and then attempted to turn the plane into a, the car into a plane and went off the road and flew through the air about six metres and landed in the ditch. The, the bags went off, airbags. They were shook up in pain, and the first thing my daughter did was phone her mom. Mom! I could tell from the face of my wife that something was happening. We're in the ditch, we've had a crash, come and get us. It's where dad walks the dog. Because <laughs> I, I walk the dog miles, that dog needs it. And... 
five mile loop I do just about every day with the dog, usually running. And, and so Michelle said, get in the car, I've got bare feet. We, I rush into the car, we rush and try and find the spot and before the ambulance and the fire brigade arrive, the fire services, we get there. And I'm faced with two teenagers crying, shaken, bruised, hurting, but thankfully not serious injuries. And I felt sick to my stomach. This is what Jesus felt. This is what it's describing. I looked at that scene. I went, I felt such nausea. I felt such pain. I felt sick to my stomach. And then all the fire services turned up and, and the girls did their makeup. And <laughs> they didn't. Couldn't help the little joke. felt sick and Jesus is feeling sick and there are times in our lives where we have to sit in the garden of Gethsemane and we feel the pain we feel the trouble we're astounded way the way circumstances have turned out we feel the agony of what is taking place we don't understand why this is happening but let me tell you that every one of us as we follow Christ at times in our lives will face moments of Gethsemane I don't know where that'll come Maybe it'll come through that moment. Maybe it will come through a change of job or being laid off. Maybe it will come through a terrible sickness, a breakdown of a relationship. I don't know where these moments come, but the one thing I do know is that every one of us at times experience Gethsemane. We've been there. And Jesus is there for the whole of humanity. And he says, if it is possible, let this cup depart from me. Let's read on. And my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it's possible, that this hour might pass from him. If it's possible... Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Take this cup from me. What does that mean? As we move towards Good Friday. In the ancient scriptures of the Hebrew tradition and the prophets, the cup simply represented the sword the judgment and the wrath of God. You see, this is what Jesus was seeing. This is what Jesus was experiencing. He was looking over into the very darkness of what he would endure. And he was seeing the very darkness and the very judgment and the very wrath for man's failing and sin. And this is what was shaking him. This is what he was experiencing. He was getting a sense, a view of what he would go through. And this troubled him. This hurt him. This caused him to feel such pain deep within his life at that moment. See, Jesus had always enjoyed a loving relationship with the Father. 
At his very baptism in Mark 1, we saw him go into the cool waters and come out. And the father's affirming words, my son, my pleasure, my love. We see him in in, in Mark 9, in the transfiguration, as the cloud of glory comes and the voice comes from heaven affirming once again, my son, as Moses and Elijah are present in the glory and he's overwhelmed and washed with the love of God. Overwhelmed and enjoying the Father's presence, always knowing the Father's affirmation, the Father's love, the Father's grace. When he walked in the hills and prayed so much, he became so full of the Father's love and so connected to the divine that he could step out onto water itself and walk on water because of the presence of God in his life. It had been with him. It was present. He knew it. He experienced experienced it, but right here at this moment, he got a glimpse of what it would be to be forsaken by God at this moment. And he knew that he had to take that cup of wrath. He had to step into that place where he has never been before. That eternal dance of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, now. There was something going to happen. You see, Ezekiel 23 verse 32 says about how, how my very breast will be torn and I will be in ruin and desolation. He's taking hold of the cup, how it will be torn. In Isaiah 51, he talks about how the cup that made you stagger, the goblet of wrath, He's going to experience the wrath and the judgment and the pain of sin so that you and I may never experience that. You see, compared to Latimer, compared to Ridley, compared to Polycarp, What they went through were like flea bites compared to what the Son of God is about to engage in. He is going to take the pain of this world. He is going to take the agony of this dark world. He is going to take you and I. Now, you are wonderful people. But if I could understand your pain, your grief, your disappointments your personal battles, your sins, your agonies, and take that and put it in my body, what would happen to me? I'd probably die. I'd die. The weight of pain, because one thing I know about humans and about pastoring is that every one of you has a story to tell and if I sat and listened with you long enough, you would make me weep. We've all got that. True? And now Jesus, Jesus is stepping that way. Now you turn to me you go, but... I don't like this language, Pastor Phil. You know, you're talking about wrath. You're talking about judgment. You're talking about these things. I prefer a God of love. Will you just get on and preach love? 
Usually you're, you're a very nice preacher. You preach love, you tell jokes, you're a very happy person. Indeed I am. But I don't like wrath, and I don't like anger, and I don't like God and wrath and anger together. I like a God of love, not a God of wrath. I'm sorry. If you have a God of love who is pure, is love, you will have a God of wrath. Why? Because when you have a God of love and something so horrific happens, that love responds with anger. You know that's true. If you've got children and something happens to those children, if you live in your world and it's devastated by evil and by abuse and by pain and somebody hurts those that you truly love, what is your response? Is it not anger? And God looks at the cosmos and God sees the power of sin, of evil, of death. And God feels the anger and the judgment and yes, indeed, the wrath. Do you think that God does not hurt when, when bombs are dropped on a small Syrian city and 80 people are gassed to death as if it was the First World War and 20 children are dead? Do you not think that a God of love feels a sense of anger for what sin and evil and the powers of darkness have done to this very planet itself? Do you not think that when we serve a God of utter love and value, that part of being love means that we, we feel emotion about that which is evil? It is true that when you proclaim a God of love, we have to face a God of anger, a God of judgment. A God of wrath. Because that's the other side of deep love. And God is angry at evil. He's angry at injustice. And yet he allowed the punishment that you and I should have endured and should endure and the judgment of God, he allowed his son, to step into the very darkness itself and to take the cup of wrath and to say, I come to die for the sins of this world. That's what he did for you and for me. And he took it himself, but we don't like it. C.S. Lewis when talking about the anger of God, wrote to his friend Malcolm. It's actually a book called Letters to Malcolm. It's basically about prayer. But in the book Letters to Malcolm, Malcolm says to him, um, Lewis, the one thing I don't like is this God of anger and this God of wrath and God... I don't like this. He said, Lewis, I prefer to think of God like an electric wire. And if you happen to stumble off the wrong path, then you get electrocuted or you get a shock. But it's not done because of its choice. It's done because it just exists. 
as God's presence. You touch it, and it gives you a shock. And Lewis wrote back to Malcolm. I said, my dear Malcolm, why would you substitute a loving, forgiving, caring God who is capable of, yes, anger and judgment for a a wire with power passing through it and yet with no ability to bring life, to bring forgiveness, to bring God's, his love. Why would you delete that from God? Why would you civilize God in that way? So he just simply becomes kind of humanitarian. A nice, scolding schoolmistress. No. The fact that we have a God that is passionate about us. The fact that we have a God who loves us. The fact that we have a God that cares for us. The fact that we have a God that is willing to send his son to die for us means that he loves much. But the amazing thing is that today we are a forgiven people. We are a loved people. You and I have come under the shadow of the blood of the Lamb. You and I are free. You and I are forgiven. You and I know God's grace and that we will not stand there on the day of judgment as ones condemned. We stand before the eternal God as those who came through, those who were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, were kept safe by the word of the testimony. And even we disregarded our life Why? Because the King of kings and the Lord of lords had risen from the grave. He has done that. But what do we do with pain? Your garden, your Gethsemane. Well, I want you to know that what you're facing in your life, Jesus is with you. He's with you. You see, when we have pain and suffering, what often generally people like to do, suffering is created when our circumstances are like this, but we expect our circumstances to be like this way. And and when our circumstances are not as we think they should be, depending on the circumstances, there is pain involved in that. Now, I'm not talking about And often our response to pain is to run, is to find another place, is to try and reinvent ourselves. Now, I'm not talking about if you're in an abusive relationship because sometimes it is appropriate to get out of your circumstances and to change your environment, absolutely. But I'm talking about that the natural response when we are uncomfortable with our life and our pain and what we're traveling through is basically to run and to change our circumstances. Buddhism will teach you to... To rise above it, to become detached. It will teach you 
to become indeed like the Greeks, stoic, and to 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 step back from it and and manage your circumstances. And and anyway, as the Buddhists Buddhists will teach you, it's not reality anyway. Find a new reality and detach yourself from the pain that you're going through. And yet Jesus in Mark's gospel. He didn't do any of that, did he? He didn't detach himself from the pain. He didn't detach himself. He, didn't, he wasn't like Socrates. He embraced the pain. He brought it to his father. And he said, Abba, Daddy, Father. Father, I'm here. I'm in the middle of this darkness. I'm facing this mission, and yet not your will, my will be done, let your will be done. Look at that in Mark's Gospel, just at the end of the passage. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And sometimes... In our Christian life, we don't have the answers of why we go through what we've gone through. For all of our theology and all of our formulas, sometimes we're holding a cup and it's a cup we never expected to hold. But let me tell you something, the deepest level of Christian faith in the middle of battles of life is to be able to pray Thy will be done, not my will be done. God first. He rules. He is sovereign. He is my saviour. God has got this. And Jesus understands your pain. He understands your agony. He understands your Gethsemane. And he will travel with you. You see, Jesus is alone so you may never be alone. Jesus experiences the darkness so that you will never be in darkness. Jesus goes through death so that you may never die. So we have our Gethsemanes, but they are different because he stood right there with us. And your Gethsemane Maybe that relationship, maybe that business, maybe that illness, maybe your personal battle with mental health or depression, I don't know. But Jesus has gone through the greatest darkness. He's looked into the very abyss on the edge of the cliff in Gethsemane and he said, yes, Father, And on Good Friday, we will discuss and think about how at that point, he fell. He went to that place. Because he loves you so much. He loves you so much. He values you so much. And he has redeemed you. And I found Gethsemane one of the most comforting journeys in my life when I have been stripped, when I've been broken, when I've seen 
parents suffer mental health issues, when I've seen a parent die of alcohol abuse fundamentally, when I've seen such sad things and I've walked through them in my life and I've been there and I've got nowhere to turn, I haven't even got words to speak, the grief is so great and yet he is there in the midst of that life. He is there. He is there. And you simply say, your will, not my will. Let's pray together. On this Palm Sunday, Lord, they cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna. And I want to thank you that you are my God who loves and understands your creation in such a beautiful, intimate way. And I want to thank you And I want to pray for every one of my dear friends here that if they're in a Gethsemane moment that God, you would comfort them this morning in the final moments of this service and minister to them. Maybe for a moment, as every head's bowed, you are travelling through what you would describe as a sickening experience astonished and troubled, I'd like to pray for you as your pastor. I can't pray for you by name. But if that's you and where you're at, just slip your hand up and put it down again for a moment. Say, Pastor Phil, I'm in that moment. God bless. I'm in that battle. I need Jesus to come close to me. God bless. I need Jesus to minister to me. I need Jesus to work in my life. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray for each person now that, God, you will come to them in the middle of what they're traveling through and your light will shine. Your comfort will come. That in the middle of our Gethsemanes of life, we pray that we will see Easter Sunday. We will see all that you do in our lives, I ask. In the name of Christ. Amen.